We are in our series, uh, David, a man after God's own heart, and this morning we're dealing with part two, dealing with giants, based on 1 Samuel chapter 17. So throughout this passage uh, this, this morning, we will not be looking at every verse by verse, but we'll be jumping from... Uh, you know, there's quite a few verses, so we'll try and jump to the most uh, important verses in, um, in our passage with regards to the lesson that God has for us. Now, those, those of us who have grown up in church know there are many parts of the Bible that we've, we have grown very familiar with. Um, and, and they are so familiar with us that uh, we've been hearing them from Sunday school and then youth group and I'm speaking here of those who have grown up in in Christian families, of course. And you become so familiar with the passage that you actually forget the lesson that God has for us. And and, and so when you come to a message or a sermon this morning, you say, well, I've I've heard it, okay, let's move on to, to the next lesson. But we need to slow down sometimes because God's word, we need to approach it afresh and new every morning, every day, and especially with the privilege that we have in, in hearing God's word. And one of those classic stories is the one between David and Goliath. It has all the elements to keep our interest. It should have. It should be able to easily keep our interest because of the power of God. And even though many would like to treat it as such, this is not a fairy tale like Jack and the Beanstalk. All right? Let's just put that out there. What we have here is actual history with spiritual implication for our lives. That's why it's here. And we need to be aware that the enemy is all around us today. For good reason, he is an enemy. He takes many forms. They are not BFGs, big friendly giants, Remember the book by... Okay, all right. But rather they are BMGs, big mean giants. And like the Israelites in our passage, often when confronted, we don't know what they do. I want us to take a closer look at this familiar passage and see what David did when he stepped up to face Goliath on that day. So first of all, the challenge in verses 1 to 11... Verse 2, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was, his height was six cubits in a span. Verse 10, Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul and and, and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Now, The Philistines, one hill, Israelites, another, the valley in between them. Now, I have a pic here of what the valley of Elah looks like today. 
little different, right? So there, around about where that, that, those green patches are, you know, the, the grass and all of that, that's sort of the, the valley in between with the hills. So, yeah. Uh, so if you go to Israel today, that's what, that's what you're going to see. It wasn't there 3,000 years ago. So the Philistines have made an incursion into Israeli territory, trying to see this, seize this strategic area, which is sort of southwest of Jerusalem and, and west of, of, of Bethlehem. And, and the, the Valley of Elah is actually an important uh, route that would give greater access to the rest of the land of Israel. It's this green valley that, that sort of goes up um, through, through the centre. This is why it was important for the Israelites to defend it. Yet both armies are reluctant into the valley because that will give their enemies an advantage over them. For this reason, there is a standoff. So this giant called Goliath turns up. It's pretty big, almost three metres in height. Pretty impressive, right? What Goliath proposes is the ancient tradition of one-on-one single combat with winner take all, like two gladiators in the middle. One man from your side, one man from our side. They would fight to the death and the army of the winner would win the entire battle. I think we, we should have had more battles like this, right? I, personally, this plan saved time and potentially avoided you know, useless bloodshed, as happens in war. But it only worked if somebody else accepted the challenge. Goliath came out 40 days straight, twice a day, morning and evening, to challenge the men of Israel. Each day the challenge was the same. No one would dare to answer the challenge. God's people were losing the battle even before it started. Years before, the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, do you know that within two years, after crossing the the Red Sea, within two years the Israelites arrived at the banks of the Jordan River. All they had to do was cross the river and take the promised land that God had promised to them. They sent 12 spies who looked over the land, who would look over the land and then report back. What happened? Ten of them came back with a very next land report. Why? Because of the, the giants on the land. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, told them, we can do this, guys. Come on. We've got this. Unfortunately, guess what? The people listened to the negative report of the ten rather than the courage, the challenge of the two. And what what was the result? As a result, 
For 38 more years they wandered around in the wilderness. Yes, God could have removed the giants, the obstacles before Israel arrived, but he allowed them to to what? To, to be there because he wanted Israel to face them. What's sobering What's sobering in this episode is that after 38 years, when they came back eventually to the edge of the Jordan River, the giants were still waiting for them on the other side. Deuteronomy chapter 2, if you want to read the story, verses 1 to 3. They were still there. They weren't going to move. Why should they? Folks, the problem is not how big the giants are. It's how small they make us feel. And they do this by instilling fear into us, by wearing us down. Just by looking at them, our confidence is shaken. We feel weak, insecure, vulnerable. And we don't like that because it hits our pride. But you know what? Maybe that's part of God's plan. Maybe we can turn this around like Paul who started as a bully. He started going after vulnerable Christians, remember? But after Damascus After the Damascus road, God turned his life around and then he started going after giants. First, he was persecuting the poor Christians. I said, Paul, I'm going to show you, mate. I've got bigger battles for you. Turn him around. I had to face the empire. He went after giants. In, In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he says... That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in weaknesses, in insults. Bring it on! In in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Come on! Is that all you got? For why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that what it's like with us? I hope so. But if you're like me, in, in our real experience, this, it's, it's, it's really hard to take these, these verses in, to own them and say, this is possible. I know we're surprised. I know we, don't pro- we probably don't want to hear this. But when giants show up in our, in our lives, they are probably there because... God allowed them to be there. Let's be real. Goliath came back twice a day for 40 days until finally David went down to face him in the valley. If he didn't do this, if nobody had done this, the the, the giant will still keep coming back. Our giants are the same way. They will never leave on their own, even when we ask, Nicely, please leave me alone. 
They won't. Why should they? We'll have to face them tomorrow and the day after. They won't go away unless we stand up and fight in the strength of the Lord. So let's look at the hero, verses 17 to 27, verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Verse 22. David left, that's after he arrived, verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. Verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So enter David, the hero of the story. Last week, we saw how he was anointed as future king and God's spirit was in him. Naturally, as you read the story, one would have expected the jeweller to turn up and measure his head so he could fit a crown on, right? That's what you normally expect. There's none of that. No hint of royalty, just a humble shepherd keeping sheep and now a lunch boy. How is that for pride, right? You're anointed by God, the Spirit within you, and he still has you keeping smelly sheep, carrying lunches. I am I'm through with this. I'm, I thought this was over. Right? No. Nah. Sorry, mate. Can't hurry God. There is none of that here. No, no hint of royalty. Just this shepherd. His three eldest brothers are the ones serving in the army. It's a fair distance, some 30 kilometers between Bethlehem to the Elah Valley. It's west. David's father, Jesse, is concerned for the welfare of his three eldest boys. So he sends David with me, all for his brothers, bread, feta cheese, salami, olives, the usual stuff that Aussie kids in, in school would envy the ethnic kids when they saw their lunchbox, you know. They saw your lunchbox and said, oh, me? I just got a sausage roll and, you know, look what your mum gives you. Yeah. Any, any, any of you guys? Yeah, yeah, all right. It turns up, he turns up just as Goliath is, is making his defiant speech and with his big booming voice, he would have been resounding all over the valley, no microphones needed, everybody trembling. Everybody trembling except, except this little kid called David. He can't understand what the fuss is about. Because God's spirit was stirring within. Uh, there is nothing 
There is nothing like war to turn a boy into a man, from a shepherd to a warrior. And yes, you look at it this way, David actually needed a Goliath in order to gain the confidence of the people that he truly was qualified to be their king. The people had to know that the man they follow, that they will eventually follow, was worthy of their trust. God would use Goliath to display his glory through the underdog who was his chosen man. Perhaps it's a little hard to accept for you and me, but we actually need those giants or we will never become what God wants us to be without them. We're just never going to grow up. God intends to use the struggle to make us stronger. Come on, Paul, you're just making this stuff up. You know, I heard the other pastor the other day and he says, no, 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 that's not, no. Well, let's read the scriptures and see what the word of God says. Reading Judges, in Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. And then we read, verse 2, He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had no previous battle experience. Who did that? It was God's plan all along. Okay, you still don't believe me. That's the Old Testament, Paul. Well, let's read in the New Testament, in James. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Consider it pure joy. Isn't this how we always tackle our trials? I'm like that. I don't know about you. <laughs> it's here. It's here. A trial, you see, is not wasted if it makes us stronger for the Lord, for His purposes. And His purposes for us are always good. As long as they bring Him the glory. I will say it once again, brothers and sisters, there are dark clouds on the horizon in our country, in our world at the moment. Open your eyes. Very dark clouds. As you probably gather by now, Liverpool Baptist is not a triumphalist church because I need to prepare you guys through God's word for battle, the battle that is ahead. We need everyone our young people, the generation that is coming up to be strong in the Lord because of the challenges ahead. This is why stories like these, we, we, we need to own them because it's that, it didn't just happen 3,000 years ago. This is God's people need to be built up, strengthened, and we will only be strengthened step by step because the giants are going to get bigger. 
Obviously, there will be detractors. The detractors, verses 28 to 39. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Verse 33, Saul replied, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. Now this wasn't this wasn't David's first outing in the school of faith. He has done it before, but this is his first public outing. Even though he was a teenager, he had already, he already proved God's presence in his past experience. The lion and the bear were good training. But there was no one there to see it. Right? No Facebook. You couldn't load it up. Hey, Dad, look what I did. And all your friends, hey, well done. Look at that trophy. He just killed Cecil. But here, God is putting his man on display for the world to see. God is doing this. And after this outing, life will start to change dramatically for David. Yes, his popularity will grow, but so will the opposition. There's a saying, soon as you put your roof tiles on, someone will start throwing rocks at it. Right? That's what usually happens. Stick your head out. They're going to go after it. Straight away we notice a little bit of sibling rivalry here. Big brother questions little brother about his motives and belittles him in front of the others by telling him, to, yeah, come on, just, just go back, look after the sheep. Little twerp. What are you doing here? It's ironic that his oldest brother accused him of turning up just to watch the battle and put it on Instagram when all that the Israelites and the the whole army, when all they had been doing for the last 40 days is nothing but watching. Right? And who's accusing? I said, what's going on here? Eventually when he's brought before the king, remember that's Saul does not know that this kid is the new anointed king. Saul doesn't know that. But God had already determined whose influence would would diminish and whose would increase. Saul, you see, makes the same mistake that we spoke about last week. He was considering a man's appearance. Whereas God looks at, at the heart. But since there's no one else, I suppose, somebody to put their hand up to the, uh, the king's reward, to somebody to turn up and fight Goliath, no one else. So he says to David, young David, may the Lord be with you. It shows where his real trust is by 
giving him his tunic and coat of armour and, uh, and helmet. I think actually he wanted David to look like him. Right? And from a distance, right in the middle of the valley, I said, is that Saul? Who is that? Who is that down out there? But after trying it out, David wisely tells Saul, thanks but no thanks. I can't do this. It's unnatural. Because David's faith was in the living God, not in human methods, not in human protection. Too many Christians today, I feel, are fighting the enemy with worldly techniques and methods. The latest in human psychology and leadership advice. And obviously, to make it, when you preach it from the pulpit, you need to add religious cliches tacked on to make it sound spiritual. So you grab stuff from the world, you bring it to the pulpit, and you tack on, you find verses that sort of back up your secular approach. A version of Saul's, may the Lord be with you. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? May the Lord be with you. You're going to get so slaughtered. May the Lord be with you. What we are instructed to do is to prayerfully turn to God's word, the Bible, which shows us unequivocally unequivocally to, to trust in the living God, not the wisdom of the world, not the weapons of the world, but the weapons that God has given us and promised to us. That's the important bit. So the approach, verses 40 to 48. Verse 40, then he took the pouch of his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Then we jump to verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. It's courage, isn't it? Before the combat, notice how Goliath gives David some typical trash talk by saying, come over here and I'll feed you to the birds and the beasts. It's a bit like the, the boxers before they, they fight. When they go for their way and there's all this trash talk between the boxers. And David answers back with one of the greatest statements of faith in the Bible. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He makes the same point in verse 26, verse 36, verse 45. It's unmistakable. He makes it again and again. In defying the armies of Israel, Goliath was actually defying the God of Israel. It wasn't just a military conflict. This was a deeply spiritual one. As a shepherd, David didn't know much about armour and helmets and swords, but he knew God and he knew stones. His weapon of choice. 
in uh, Exodus chapter 4. There's a passage there after chapter 3, Exodus, Moses. God appears to Moses in a burning bush and then God calls Moses to go back to Egypt to free his people. And Moses comes up with excuse after excuse after excuse. Please send someone else. In chapter 4, chapter 4, after, you know, what am I going to say? And God says to him, what are you holding in your hand? What is in your hand? God was going to use whatever Moses had. And what was it? It was a staff. Throw it on the ground. I'm going to use that. God wants us to use whatever he has given us, our gifts and our talents. They are the most natural things that we have grown up with. Our character. And and he perfects that. The one who has wired us together, knitted us together, is the one who will use those very things for his glory, if we let him. He had a sling, he had stones, this is what he had in his hands. His past experience with bears and lions told him to simply continue to rely on God and Goliath was just another beast. A bit bigger than a bear and a lion, but just another animal. Have you ever, let's go back a bit and, and perhaps ask a, a a deeper question, have you ever wondered, ask yourself, what kind of faith that David had? There's a clue given here in, in something very simple. The fact that he took not just one stone, but the fact that he took five stones tells me that he had faith, but he wasn't stupid about it. Right? Faith is not being presumptuous, like the old saying, let go and let God. Also, faith is not waiting and doing nothing until all your doubts are gone. You'll be waiting forever. In Spanish we have a saying, and it goes like this, Adios orando y con el mazo dando. Let me translate it into English. We pray to God, but we keep hammering away. We hammer away even while we pray. The main difference between David and the other soldiers in the Israelite army was not that he had faith and they had doubts, or that they had doubts and he had no doubts. The difference is that David acted on his belief and ignored his doubts. He had doubts, but he ignored them. They acted on their doubts and ignored their belief in the living God. That's the difference. The very God that they professed to believe in was overcome by the fear in this giant. As we discuss his approach, we need to look at David's ultimate motivation in doing so. What is, what is the ultimate motivation that David had to defeat Goliath? Was it the possibility of marrying the princess, the king's daughter? 
We know it happened, but that was a bit of a mess anyway. Firstly, I think his, it was his shepherd heart that was a, a motivation. In the field, he, he was responsible for protecting his sheep. So he killed the attackers and delivered the sheep. When he came to Israel, David had already been anointed to be the next king of Israel. And what was happening is that the shepherd heart kicked in. When he saw the people being attacked by this beast called Goliath, he just reacted with the heart of a shepherd. He wanted to protect the sheep. Secondly, in verses 46 to 47, there is, is a witness to the nations. That was the other motivation. All the pagans needed to know that there is a God in Israel. He wanted unbelievers to see that God is real and that he is mighty to save to those who trust him. And thirdly, thirdly, this was a witness to all the soldiers who were back on the hill watching as these events unfold. He wanted to be a witness to them as well. He wanted all those, let's call them professing believers, to live out their faith. The ones who weren't really trusting in God to know that the Lord is real, that he is the ultimate king who is on the throne and this battle is his. It's an encouragement to them. Now lastly, the victory in verses 49 to 50. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Verse 50, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. After all that, the whole lesson, it, it, this, this almost comes as a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? Because the, that Goliath was defeated way back. This was just a confirmation, isn't it? He was the, the, the defeated bully, he just didn't know it. And the time had come for David to take that which he had already been given by the Lord. Walked down the valley, faced the giant, declared his faith in God, slung the stone which went like a, like a missile and killed the giant. Now what a moment in this young man's life to see God do that which he had done before, now God doing it in front of everybody else because this young man continued to believe in the same God. God was faithful before, he'll be faithful now. And by killing Goliath, the Philistines are defeated for now. But like always, folks, remember that our victories this side of heaven are never final. Our victories at best are temporary. One day they will be final because the enemy would regroup and there will be future battles for David. David's giants will come back in many shapes and sizes. There's two times 
The giants were in his own family, his children. The temptation of a woman having a shower outside. The giants will come in in many forms. And ultimately, this man who is renowned to be after God's own heart will have a heart so moulded by God despite his failures that he will continue to bring God the glory despite his many weaknesses. And God would use them. For now, David's heroics meant there was no unnecessary bloodshed, including the lives of his three brothers who could now return home to their father. Whether the brothers appreciated his efforts or not, I don't know. But the father, I think, would have been very thankful to have his sons back. What is it that motivates us to face the battle? Whatever we do, folks, um, we have to do it for the audience of one, for the glory of God. I hope and pray that God will continue to give us the strength for the determination to continue to live our lives for his glory and honour. Amen.